walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 50, I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. We often talk about the remarkable impact that pilgrimage offers us as individuals, an opportunity to disconnect from and reflect upon our daily lives, to reevaluate what's really important, to be immersed in the natural world, feeling healthy and strong, to explore our faith and to chart our next act. As I discussed with Dr. McIntosh in episode 49, though, pilgrimage also has the potential to make a broader impact as a vehicle for peacebuilding work at a regional and national level. In this episode, we'll dig deeper into that potential. Given how history unfolded, many in this English-speaking audience live in countries that are products of a colonial past and I suspect a majority of those listening have settler ancestry. That is to say, many of us are connected to ancestors who settled in formerly indigenous lands and have materially benefited from those colonial processes. And, I suspect, this is certainly true in my country, we are largely ignorant of what those colonial processes entailed and the ongoing challenges facing indigenous populations in our countries today. All of that said, There are academic and religious leaders showing us right now how pilgrimage can function as a decolonizing or reconciliatory act, a contribution to these larger processes. And I'll speak with three people doing this work in this episode. Dr. Matthew Anderson of Montreal, Canada, has developed a small-scale pilgrimage from Old Town, Montreal to Kahnawake on nearby Mohawk territory, as well as a longer pilgrimage through the Canadian Plains in Saskatchewan. Meanwhile, Jenny Boyack and John Hornblow organize pilgrimages in New Zealand that bring together Pakeha, or New Zealanders of European heritage, with Maori and pass through culturally and naturally significant places. Combined, they highlight how pilgrimage can provide a space to build a deeper, shared understanding and also a closer relationship with the land. So that's the plan. Matthew in Montreal, followed by John and Jenny in Palmerston North. Enjoy. Dr. Matthew Anderson is a professor, cleric, podcaster, filmmaker, and activist. He's the author of several forthcoming books, including The Good Walk, Unsettling Pilgrimages on the Prairies, and also Our Road to Walk, A Settler's Christian Guide to Rediscovering Treaty. And his podcast, Pilgrimage Stories from Up and Down the Staircase, has 10 episodes ready for your listening enjoyment. Thanks for speaking with me, Matthew. Oh, it's a real pleasure to have a chance to chat, Dave. I'm excited to have this conversation because I have been diving into a lot of the the work that's being done in pilgrimage in academic circles. And I have found now this particular subsection of research and activism focused on pilgrimage as a tool for reconciliation and peace building. And you're doing this work right next door for me in Canada. To get us started, what drew you to pilgrimage as both a practice and a topic of research? Like most 
things for most of our lives, it's, it starts off with an encounter. And in this case, it was the chair of my department, who's unfortunately has passed since then, but her name was Pamela Bright. And she was a great scholar, but also somehow interested in pilgrimage. And even though I'd been interested in walking and walking long trails for a long time, I'd been, for instance, on the long trail in Vermont. She called me into her office one day and said, I want you to design a class on pilgrimage, to learn about pilgrimage studies, which is this new field, and to take a group of students on the Camino. And she said, God willing, I'll come with you. As it turned out, she wasn't able to because of the cancer and chemotherapy that she was undergoing. But I did take some students then on the Camino the following summer. I had my own glitches because I had, I had snapped my Achilles tendon uh. playing basketball only six weeks before we were supposed to arrive in Spain. And so I was a crippled pilgrim when we, when we landed in Spain. You are speaking my nightmare, the Achilles popping. So I'm cringing on your behalf. I'm, I'm sorry you went through that. What were you able to get from that experience, even restricted in your movements? I mean, it taught me some things about pilgrimage because I was together with a fellow professor, Sarah Thoreau, who kindly took over sort of the guidance of the students from day-to-day walking because I just was only able to walk maybe eight or nine kilometers a day. Even that was a real stretch because I was in a cast with a cane. But what it taught me a little bit was what is pilgrimage, that whole definition of pilgrimage. And we were kind of finding that in the texts right then because people were saying, well, pilgrimage is this long walk. And other people were saying pilgrimage is the destination, the shrine. Well, it was interesting on the Camino because here I was, I was unable to walk more than a few kilometers a day. And I I had a German pilgrim come up to me one time and say, I'm so sorry that you can't be a proper pilgrim. And I thought about that comment because here I was, I was injured. People were praying for my recovery and I was on my way to a shrine. And I thought, really, according to the definition of pilgrimage, for most of history, I was a perfect pilgrim. I was damaged. I was in need of prayer. I was in need of healing. And here I was on my way to a shrine. But for this particular Camino walker, because I wasn't able-bodied and in full health, I could not be a pilgrim according to her definition at that time. So that brought up for me that the sort of incongruity is about what does it mean to be a pilgrim? Is it about the walking? Is it about the shrine? What combination of those things? And that then led you back to what many consider the starting point of the Camino Frances to the Pyrenees between Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port and Roncevalles, correct? Yeah, that's right. I, after my first experience in 2011 of taking these students and accompanying them in my own crippled way with my snapped Achilles tendon, the next year I went back with a camera and I walked with my son. I just happened to have a chance to meet him. He was living in uh, Germany at the time. And we met and we uh, walked from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port over the Pyrenees on a particularly nasty uh, bit of (laughs) late April weather. And all I did was ask people who were starting out, why are you doing this? Why are you setting out to walk 800 kilometers toward Santiago? And then I put the results of those questions into my film, Something Grand, which is a a 26-minute documentary. And it's worth watching, yeah. And it's available through your personal site, somethinggrand.ca, correct? Yeah, absolutely. You can find it on my blog site, somethinggrand.ca. There are two Gs, something grand, but it's all one word. And so after you had these two short experiences on the Camino, your first extended walking pilgrimage was actually St. Olaf's Way in Norway. And, And we'll get to Canada in a moment, and that's the heart of this conversation. But I'm interested in this as your first extended walking pilgrimage. How did you end up there? And and what was that like for you? 
Well, I think that, that they're related in some way to the Canadian walks uh, to that because the Canadian walks are about walks with and under the guidance of Indigenous peoples. And when you start talking about Indigenous, of course, as, as some of my Indigenous friends will say, we're all Indigenous to somewhere. <laughs> and in my particular case, my father's parents immigrated to Canada from Norway. And so I've always had this kind of connection with Norwegian culture and background. But I've always realized that, like a lot of North Americans of European background, I'm kind of a hybrid in the sense that I've got background of all different kinds of things. And, and in addition, even if my grandparents spoke Norwegian and came from Norway, there's something identifiably North American about me and Canadian in my case. And so there were a group of people, and you can just tell from the last names of the people I traveled with, we were all Canadians. The last names were Jorgensen and Hedlund. All of the names were Scandinavian background names, essentially. We arrived in Norway to walk part of the St. Olaf Way. And one of the first things I realized is I'm not really Norwegian. <laughs> but, uh, it was fun because we got there. We, only one of our group could really speak the language. Two of the people could sort of understand. And people could tell, the Norwegians could tell right away from our clothing, from our probably the way we walked and the expectations that we had that we were not Norwegian, despite our names and you know the way we might have looked. We blended in fairly well with other Norwegians. But it was a real great walk. We walked from Dovrefjell in the high mountains toward Trondheim, or Trondheim, which is actually where my grandmother grew up. And it's a stunning, stunning place, Norway. If, if you ever have a chance, it's just magnificent in terms of the scenery. And we, it was late spring when we walked, and so there was a lot of runoff. And we were constantly jumping streams. And the St. Olaf Way is fascinating to me because it's, it represents a, a whole genre of trail in Europe, which is a kind of Camino-inspired revitalization or recovery of a medieval Christian trail. And what's fascinating to me a little bit is like so many of the others, even though there is a shrine at the end of the St. Olaf Way in Norway, the bones of the saint disappeared in the Reformation and nobody really cares, which tells you a lot <laughs> about the way that the pilgrimage is now seen. It's seen as the walk rather than the arrival. And the important transformation is not so much the transformation at the shrine in contact with the surplus holiness of the saints, but the transformation takes place as one walks on the trail in contact with this supernatural kind of nature of Norway, but also with the, the meditative ways that uh, walking transforms us as we go as pilgrims. It struck me as well when I was walking it a number of years ago that it goes even further than just the relics because so many of the building materials in Norway were wood that you don't have the same hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of year old structures predominating. And so it really is like what seems enduring there is nature. And that is really the distinguishing feature of the pilgrimage. Yeah, absolutely. Other Scandinavians will tease Norwegians about the fact that all they talk about are mountains and fjords. Um, but it's kind of true. That is what they talk about. And as you say, the, the wooden structures, I mean, there are those beautiful old stavshirk, the, the old stave churches, which are astounding. And one of the reasons they're astounding, is, as you know, if you've seen them, or for anyone who's seen them, is that they build in, like so many of human constructions do, of faith, they build in the pre-existing mythologies as well. So in the stave churches in Norway, you have dragon's heads built into the very structure of the church. And it says something about probably the nature of belief, that these things don't go away, they just get incorporated in new ways in faith systems. Hmm. Well, let's shift over to Canada now. 
And we've mentioned that your work focuses on pilgrimage in that particular context, and especially within the context of contemporary Indigenous and settler relations in Canada. For people who are listening who lack familiarity with that dynamic. And, you know, I know in the USA, we are shockingly ignorant of history and culture of our neighbor to the north. Could you offer a synopsis? What do people need to understand about First Nations history in Canada to be able to track your pilgrimage work and the discussion that follows? One of the things about being Canadian is that we spend a lot of time watching Americans. (laughs) And so we tend to know or we think we know, maybe it's better, we think we know a lot about the United States, and sometimes we don't. (laughs) But Canada and the United States, in terms of the colonial societies that were built over top of the Indigenous, on Indigenous land, had started in different ways. And I think that, you know, it's a little bit like where you start depends on where you finish. And Canada and the United States started in quite different ways in the sense that the United States began as a, in some ways, as a as a way of independence from England, whereas Canada started in many, many ways as a practical business compromise uh, for some. And also it was peopled in many cases by Americans who came north who were loyalists. And so there's a very strong influence in terms of the settler society of Canada of these loyalists, people who did not want independence from England, who came north to be part of a dominion, a British dominion, And then you also have these sort of practical business interests of the Scots and especially of the Scots and other English business interests. And then you have the fact of French Canada or Les Québécois, Quebec, which was the original European settlement of that part of what is now Canada. And Quebec as a French fact and as a distinct society is is something which has always kind of given a unique character to Canada overall. So for all these reasons, as a European descended society, which now sits in Canada, is unique from the United States in some ways, but is also similar in so many ways. I'm in, in England right now in Nottingham, and people always think that I'm American. Sometimes they can tell I'm Canadian from the accent, but frankly, I can't always tell the difference in an American and a Canadian accent. And there are so many similarities in our cultures. In terms of how we dealt with Indigenous peoples, there were a lot of similarities and some differences. One of the main similarities, I guess, I can't speak from an Indigenous point of view, but I'm imagining that an Indigenous person would say colonization is colonization. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what happened in both cases, where European background societies predominantly came in and took land and expropriated it and pushed Indigenous populations, which were already then decimated from massive disease brought in by the Europeans. I mean, that was smallpox and so on was not necessarily intentionally spread by European settlers, but of course, we know that sometimes it was. Mm -hmm. But those diseases ravaged the indigenous populations on both sides of the border. And the American difference, in one sense, was that the Americans near the end actually declared war on the indigenous peoples. The Canadians didn't. Now, that's not because we were any more morally upright. I think it was because, frankly, Canada didn't have the money or the people to do so. And so the Canadians did what, uh, the Canadian, that is the European background, Canadians in the government in Ottawa took a uh, stance that was fairly typical of of later Canadian policy, which was that we felt more morally upright than our American neighbors by not declaring war on Indigenous populations. But then we turned around and used starvation, frankly, as a mechanism for once the buffalo or bison herds were gone on the plains, starvation was used as a very draconian tactic to move Indigenous populations in what became the Canadian West onto reserves. There's a nasty history, either side of the border, with a difference that for the most part, Canadian military never or very rarely sort of shot at Indigenous populations. But uh, 
committed violence in so many other ways, frankly. And what is the role of treaty within that? The term treaty shows up a lot in conversations about Canada and its indigenous population. Yeah, thank you for bringing it back to treaty. If I could summarize the kind of walks that we've taken in the Canadian West and the kind of research that I've done together with Indigenous scholars like Ray Aldred, who's writing that book, Our Road to Walk, The Guide to Living in Treaty or Discovering Treaty. It's about walking into treaty. And on the Canadian side of the border, and remember, one thing I probably should say is that for most Indigenous Plains peoples, for instance, the border was, I mean, it was something that was cast up. It was an artificial barrier recognized by the colonial societies on both sides, the American and the Canadian. But for a lot of people, the Métis or the Plains Cree or the Lakota or the Nakota, they were used to moving back and forth across that land without a border. So the border was something that arose from the experience of people like my grandparents and perhaps yours. But treaty, the Canadian government, in part, again, because Canada was just a poorer nation without a more thinly spread European population, a lot of those first Europeans who traveled into the northwest of the continent did not have the power to sort of dictate terms to the indigenous people. And frankly, they relied on the indigenous population for everything. And so as a result, they were in a much weaker position originally, and they conducted treaties. So a lot of Canadian of land in what is now Canada was parceled out to European society by means of treaty and treaties were made. So one of the reasons that we walk these trails is to remind Canadians, because 100 years after those treaties were signed, in some cases on the plains, the European background people have forgotten that they are in fact treaty people. And the indigenous people will sometimes say, don't forget that there are two sides to a treaty. And it's not just indigenous people who are treaty people, it's the descendants of the folks who signed those treaties with us. And so one of the things that I like to try and emphasize in our walks is that we are a treaty people and walking is one way of reminding ourselves that this is treaty land and what does it mean to make a covenant, which is another way of describing a treaty. What does it mean to have a covenant and what are the responsibilities on both sides of that agreement? So let's take a step back from that and go back to where this originates for you, bringing pilgrimage into this work. Canada has its colonial past and it has its recent two decades where there has been a push in the Canadian state and church leadership to address some of these historical abuses, most especially the traumatic legacy of Indian residential schools in the country. There's been a big emphasis on education, on documenting the history, on providing some funds in support of rebuilding, while at the same time indemnifying the church and state against future lawsuits. What does pilgrimage offer as a complementary initiative to all of those other initiatives that are unfolding in service to reconciliation in Canada? That's a question that we should be talking about for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> I'm sure that you you know Rebecca Solnit and her book, Wanderlust, uh, mm-hmm. among other books. And she's a brilliant writer, of course. But one of the things that she said is she talks about when walking can become testifying. And I've always loved that expression. And that was one of two things that she said that's always stick with me. The other is that she says that walking emphasizes the circulatory systems of travel, of transport. And for that reason, she said, walking is the antithesis of owning. So your question is about, you know, what does pilgrimage offer in terms of reconciliation? Unfortunately, a number of Indigenous authors that I read 
and they include people like Margaret Kovach, who is a Cree or Nahiyao writer from Saskatoon, I think, or at least from Saskatchewan, from Treaty 6 territory, or Leanne uh, Betasamose Simpson, who is uh, Anishinaabe, or Eva Mackey. They will, and others, will talk about how reconciliation is still a far-off goal because it's the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that Mm -hmm. was what you were talking about. And for a lot of these Indigenous authors, non-Indigenous Canadians need to deal with the fact that we still have to deal with some truths before we can ever even approach the idea of reconciliation. So what do walks do? For me, walking can be a form of decolonization, of sort of education toward decolonization. And that's the way that we've used it in part on the Canadian prairies. It's been a way of us those of us who are settler descendants or settlers, we learn about the land and we learn about the history of the land. In many cases, history that has been pushed aside and which we have never learned in school. By learning about the land, we realize that the Indigenous peoples who are resurgent in the Canadian West and are demanding more and more the rights that they signed for in treaty, that we learn something about our ongoing responsibilities to them. So walking is one way of taking in learning with our feet and with our bodies. And, and you know this as a walker, of course, and the people who are listening to your podcast, I'm sure know this too, that there is a way in which walking helps to reinforce learning. And that we get to, when we see land at two or three miles an hour, we pay attention to more details. So a good example of that for me is that a lot of people in Saskatchewan and the northern part of the Great Plains, a lot of people think of this as, it's called flyover country. Is that true on the other side of the border as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's called flyover country, you know, by urban people, which is kind of dismissive way of saying there's nothing interesting there and there's no people. Well, when you walk it, it's not easy to walk. I will say that our our walk in 2015 on the Northwest Mounted Police Patrol Trail, we had to carry liters of water every day because there was just there was no place to replenish it. It's not easy because there's not much of a population, settlement population there right now. But when you get out on the land and you walk, you will find hundreds and hundreds of, say, lodge rings or teepee rings, it might be called, showing that the history of settlement of that land goes back tens of thousands of years and that the land was much more densely occupied by Indigenous peoples than it is now. And so learning that says something about when you're someone like me and you're walking that, you go, wow. There's a history here that I haven't been aware of. And the people who were here signed treaties so that my grandparents could come and have a farm, say, or plow the land and raise crops. And, you know, that treaty is ongoing. It hasn't gone away. I still have responsibilities toward that treaty. So walking is a way of reinforcing the decolonization that comes with learning those kinds of things for me. Could you talk more about the Northwest Mounted Police Trail, which is a walk that you have spearheaded as a pilgrimage? What is it? What's the inspiration behind it? And what's it like? I mean, I grew up in the southwest corner of what is present-day province of Saskatchewan. So just north of North Dakota, Montana area, very close to this, what are called the Cypress Hills. And the Cypress Hills are remnant of land that were left behind by the last ice age of heights, of high hills. And on the plains, the northern Great Plains, the Cypress Hills are the highest piece of land between the Rocky Mountains and the Appalachians, essentially for Labrador in Canada. And so they had a unique fauna and flora, uh, lodgepole pines and grizzly bears and elk and moose and the kinds of animals that you don't find on the Great Plains generally. I grew up fairly close to this 
area of the Cypress Hills. And so for me, walking the Northwest Mounted Police Patrol Trail became a kind of a way of rediscovering my own background at the same time as discovering the Indigenous history of that area. And because we were fortunate enough to have on our first walk in 2015, Richard Cotterwich, who is a Métis or Machief. The Métis are a distinct people who arose out of the intermarriage of often fur traders or the earliest European settlers and Indigenous people, very often Cree. He walked with us and so gave us a perspective on that while we were walking that. It's a trail of 350 kilometers between a place called Wood Mountain and a place called Fort Walsh. And many of the people who might be listening to this podcast might know something about the Northwest Mounted Police and that sort of, you know, the old image of the red coat. And these are iconic places. These were the first places established by the Northwest Mounted Police, which became the RCMP when they were formed in 1871. And they were largely formed talking about the history between our two countries, Canada and the United States. One of the official reasons for forming the Northwest Mounted Police was to try and get American whiskey traders out of that area. (laughs) Um, Because Canada was, again, officially was saying that this is terrible. These are dangerous people. And there was a massacre in the Cypress Hills by wolfers who shot a large number of Indigenous people. And the Northwest Mounted Police marched west. And it all sounds very virtuous. But as always in such actions, there was the virtuous part of the act of you know, making sure that there was some order and that people were safeguarded, Indigenous people were safeguarded. But unfortunately, within about 35 or 40 years, the Northwest Mounted Police also helped to move Indigenous people from that same area onto reserves and out of that area so that Europeans could settle and farm. But the Northwest Mounted Police Trail is this 350-kilometer path that was taken by the Northwest Mounted Police, but also by Sitting Bull, yet another example of the interactions between the two countries, colonial countries. Uh, Now, Americans will be able to tell me much more about the battle, and so I'm going to apologize in advance for being an ignorant Canadian. But Sitting Bull essentially fled the American cavalry and came north of what he called the Medicine Line and was called by most Indigenous people the Medicine Line. And when I was growing up, oddly enough, we still called it the line, the border. It was often called by non-Indigenous Western Canadians like myself and my parents. We called it, are you going across the line? Which comes from this term, the Medicine Line. Sitting Bull came north with 5,000 Lakota warriors and families, so quite a number of people, and settled along that same path, the Northwest Mounted Police Patrol Trail between Cypress Hills and Wood Mountain and essentially claimed, sort of claimed refugee status from Great Britain and from Canada, the Dominion of Canada. And in true Canadian fashion, we eventually starved them out. The Canadians made treaties with Indigenous populations that they recognized. And even though the Lakota historically had moved across the area and certainly had historically been on the north side of what became the border, the Canadian treaty makers said, no, we're not making any treaties with you. The Lakota were a political headache And the Canadian government, the last thing they wanted was for Sitting Bull and others to make alliances with the Cree and with the Blackfoot and others north of the border. And so the Canadians just wanted him to go away and be the problem of the Americans. And they essentially starved out the Lakota to the point where Sitting Bull then eventually went back south of the border and most Lakota with him. And there was only a very small group that resisted. And so there is a very small reserve, Lakota reserve, near Wood Mountain where we started out. 
And it's interesting that in 2015, when we set out on our walk, on the first morning we walked, we had received permission from Dave Ogle, who is the one of the band counselors of the Lakota First Nation at Wood Mountain. And as the timing turned out, we showed up just in time for lunch. <laughs> so here we were, a group, mostly settler, descended people who showed up on the First Nation, commemorating, I don't know, all of those various historical things. And we showed up just in time to be served by them lunch and to receive a blessing from them as we set out on our way. It's one of the million ironies of that trail, I think. That leads me to my next question, because I'm wondering, as you make this pilgrimage on the Northwest Mounted Police Trail, I'm sure you come in contact with Indigenous populations, with Canadians of European heritage who are in this rural part of Canada. What's the reception like? How do people from those different backgrounds respond to you as pilgrim on this trail? Generally, when we were walking, people would, when a farmer or a rancher would come along in a half-ton truck and see us, the first thing that they'd say is, where did you break down? (laughs) (laughs) Can we drive you somewhere to get help? Because nobody walks across the prairie. And one of the things I should say is that if you're listening to this from almost anywhere else, I mean, I'm sure North Dakota is roughly the same, but even North Dakota is more densely populated than southwestern Saskatchewan now. That area that we were walking across really has very, very few people on the land now. And so we just did not, you don't bump into people at all. You might see in the course of a day's walk, you might see a few vehicles at a distance and that's about it. But those people who did come down a road, say, and see us, they would always ask if we were in some sort of trouble because nobody walks the plains. It's bizarre. And that was a part of our statement to do that. And certainly nobody walks this trail. Most of this trail, now the Northwest Mounted Police Trail, or the Traders Road, because it was also used by Métis traders before that. Most of that trail sits on private land, and that private land is mostly agricultural. And so we were always doing the thing of squaring the corners. I'm not sure how else to describe that. The trail would be going through a field, and if it was a planted field, we didn't walk it. So we would walk some road allowance or something, and then come around and square the corner So even if the trail was maybe 290 kilometers, we made it 350 by having to always go a little (laughs) bit farther. When you talked about Indigenous people and, you know, how would Indigenous people on that trail react? I will say that there are only two very small reserves, one at the very beginning of the trail and one at the end. And both of them historically are there because they were resistors who refused to be pushed off that land. But one of the remarkable things about that particular corner of Saskatchewan is that it is almost empty of Indigenous persons. And that's an aberration. I grew up in that corner, and I never met knowingly somebody who was Cree. I mean, I knew some Métis people, but not anyone who was Cree. And the reason was because 100 years earlier, the government of Canada had said, we're not going to leave any Indigenous persons between the railway, the National Railway, and the border. And part of the reason they did that was because they were afraid of people like Sitting Bull, and that there would be alliances made that would cause trouble for later Canadians. So it's an artificially emptied piece of land. Now, having said that, Indigenous populations, probably in the United States as well, but certainly north of the border, are very resurgent and culturally dynamic, and some of the best writing going on, and uh, some of the best historical research, and artists, and lawyers, and doctors, and, and everything. And It's interesting that this resurgence is eventually going to start filtering back into that little corner of Saskatchewan where government policy in the 1880s moved all of those people out. 
I wanted to say about the Northwest Mounted Police Trail a couple of things. One is that it's one of those cases where I'm a good dreamer and a good idea person, but I want just to say that I had this great dream about walking the Northwest Mounted Police Patrol Trail. And I contacted a group called the Saskatchewan History and Folklore Society, and they put me in touch with a fellow named Hugh Henry, who was actually, as it turns out, the person who was responsible for keeping up the markers, the historical markers along that trail. And he was the one who arranged passage. He arranged with landowners for permissions to cross so that nobody sort of shot at us as we were walking. (laughs) And he arranged for places for us to stay overnight. And he arranged in the few towns along the route, he arranged for presentations where he would talk about the settler history, the sort of farms and co-ops and that kind of early 20th century history. And I would talk about the indigenous history and about pilgrimage. And so I just want to say that I know as a fact that as I'm a great walker and an academic and I'm practical in my own ways, but I think I would have been wandering around in circles in Wood Mountain for a long time if it hadn't been for Hugh Henry actually making the practical arrangements for us to be able to walk. And he knows the land. You really have to be able to know the land. The indigenous writers, people like Margaret Kovach or Eva Mackey or Leanne Bettis-Samose Simpson will say that you need to be in relationship to land and it's a relationship. There's a great book by Tanya Talaga called All My Relations. Indigenous people aren't all the same, of course. Different indigenous nations are very, very different. But almost every indigenous nation that I've read about or encountered people from emphasize the priority of land and relationship and how you are related to your aunts and uncles and your parents, but you're also related to that land and arise out of that land. It's one of the reasons why Ray Aldred, who is writing that book with me, he talks about from a religious back point, he says that this idea of relationship is very different from the traditional Protestant view of the alienated individual. Whereas in indigenous points of view, it's a connected individual. And one of the primary connections is land. So we were walking across in part to decolonize ourselves and to reconnect with land in a way that has traditionally been more natural for indigenous peoples. And I just wanted to say that. So that's a very rural journey that you have developed and carried out. And there's also a much more compact one that you've developed closer to your university in Montreal. So bring us from that rural land connection into the big city. Yeah, well, living in Montreal, And wanting to think about Indigenous connections in Montreal is very different from the Great Plains. And the Indigenous context is very, very different. So there is a group of First Nations called the Haudenosaunee, who certainly are connected on both sides of what is now the border. And in fact, the Haudenosaunee will claim that the American Constitution is modeled on Haudenosaunee forms of governance. And it's interesting that the Haudenosaunee that I've met, the Mohawk, who are also called Ganyagahaga, or Mohawk. Ganyagahaga is essentially the Mohawk word for Mohawk. They certainly see themselves as, the ones that I've met, see themselves as independent of being either Canadian or American. And they certainly have existed on both sides of the now border and are quite militant about saying we have our own nation and we have nation-to-nation relationships. And so as a result, the idea of walking and walking to somehow recognize our connection with the Ganyagahaga or the Mohawk represented a whole bunch of different issues than walking out west. Also being an urban walk through the streets of Montreal, which has a population of, I'm not even sure, five or six million people in the greater Montreal area, I think, something like that. Very, very different. And for that reason, a lot of fun, but a much more compact walk, as you said. It was only about 32 kilometers. And frankly, if you could walk it directly, you could walk it in a few hours. (laughs) But like a lot of things in a city, there are a lot of highways and there's a river, the St. Lawrence River in between. 
And as a result, we have taken a kind of a, a long way around along the St. Lawrence Seaway Canal, which is, interestingly enough, again, a shipping mechanism that serves both Canada and the United States, because it allows shipping to travel from the Great Lakes out to the Atlantic Ocean, which serves both populations on both sides of the border. How did you decide on this particular route? What brings these two points together for you? Sarah Thoreau teaches pilgrimage with me at Concordia University, Montreal. And Sarah and I were sitting in a conference, as academics do before the pandemic. We were sitting in a conference on pilgrimage, actually, at University of York in England. And one of the things that struck us was that we were listening to academics from Canada and the United States and Australia who were all talking about pilgrimage routes in Europe. <laughs> and it kind of dawned on us after a while, everybody's talking about the Camino or about other English routes or something like this. And we thought, why is that? And after a while, we went for a beer and we were chatting about pilgrimage and all things pilgrimage. And we said to ourselves, maybe it's because, at least for the Canadians who were there, there's a sense of unease about our own land, uh, about where we call home. And so because of that, we started thinking, what is a way of connecting with that land that we call home around Montreal? And as soon as we wanted to do that, because of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings that you referred to earlier, the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings, we thought we have to in some way recognize uh, Indigenous presence, resurgence, and identity on this land. And how can we do that? And so what we did was that we thought, let's walk from our, the university, which is right plunk in the middle of Montreal downtown, Concordia University, and from our offices there, let's walk from there and take a group of students in our class from there to Ganawagi to the Mohawk Territory. It's a great idea, <laughs> but it took a little to put it into practice. And one of the things, of course, is that as always with these kinds of initiatives, here it was, we were two European background settler Canadians who had this great idea. And did we even bother to ask the Mohawk, you know, <laughs> who certainly had their own opinions about such things. So we, we thought, well, let's see, if, firstly, if we can even take a group of students on this trail. And it took us quite a while to figure out a way to get there. It was a little like that experience. I know that you, I'm sure you've read the same, the walker who wanted to walk to Heathrow Airport in London <laughs> and just could not figure out, it's not that the distance was insurmountable, but could not figure out how to actually find a way to the terminal walking that was a safe way to go. And it was the, it's the same thing for us in Montreal. Eventually we found a way, but it's interesting that one of the experiences we had was with a local city government official in a community neighboring the Mohawk. It was amazing. The conversation was in French because it, that's the language of Quebec for the most part. She said to us, there's no way that this can be done. She said, you cannot walk from here to Ganawagi. And oh, we used Google Maps. Sarah and I used Google Maps. <laughs> and five minutes later, found the route. And we went into the Mohawk territory and we were asking around in the cafe and they knew the way. But the neighboring settler community, which was a very suburban feeder community from Montreal, they had no idea. And so that tells us something about the walls that we build. And I'm sure it's the same. It's so often the same in all of our contexts, all over North America and everywhere. The walls that we build are logical and cultural. And walking is one way of, as Rebecca Solnit said, of sort of becoming more circulatory in our ambitions than connecting rather than dividing. It's the opposite of a wall. Walking is the opposite of building a wall. So we said, let's walk. Now, the other problem was that we hadn't made any arrangements with, Mo with the Mohawk. And it's a little bit like saying, I'm going to come to your place for dinner, but you know, I haven't <laughs> never met you. And it's a little bit rude and fairly typical of settler indigenous relations, sadly. But what we did is that we were fortunate enough to bump into a person by the name of Kenneth Atzahayatan Deer, 
who we arranged some bed and breakfast for our students on the Mohawk territory in Ganawagi. And we got talking with Kenneth. And because he took a mentor relationship to us and really helped us, we were able to bring our students into the territory. We were able to talk with them about the history of the Mohawk and of the Six Nations, which extend across both Canada and the United States in the Northeast. And we really received a great education from Kenneth and from Thomas Deer, no relation, but another Mohawk who is a, an artist and also an interpreter, and from a number of the Ganyagahaga people. And so that's been a wonderful learning experience for us, for our students, and also has developed a permanent relationship between a part of many ways that permanent relationships have been developed between our university and the Mohawk. It's really been wonderful and life-giving and has taught me so much. It's been a way for our students, students who typically sit in the classroom or on their screens or something, they feel in their feet the different urban communities, the history of French Montreal, so the first habitants or inhabitants of French Montreal. We start at a pilgrimage church, which is called Notre Dame de Bon Secours, which means Our Lady of Good Help, which was a pilgrimage destination for the original French colonists. And so we start there and we walk then all the way to Ganawagi. And, and by the time we get to Ganawagi, we've walked along the St. Lawrence Seaway. And the St. Lawrence Seaway is this beautiful treed area. So you get out of this sort of nitty gritty graffiti covered urban post-industrial area that we walk through and you get onto this spit of land that's got these beautiful trees. And then we get to Ganawagi and the Mohawks say to us, you know, that bit of land that you were walking along, it was dredged up by expropriating Mohawk houses. And the students and us as the instructors, we sit back and go, oh no, really? And it's true. They had the option of building the seaway on either side of the St. Lawrence River there. And the settler communities on the other side of the river said, no way are you building this seaway here. And so the government simply expropriated land all along the one side, the South Shore, including Mohawk land. And they literally had to send in police and pull grandpas and grandmas away from their porches who were resisting and pull them away from farmhouses that were then demolished by bulldozer and dug up. And that land, that Mohawk land, then created that wonderful spit of land that we and our students walk along and go, isn't this lovely? It's so pretty and natural. Uh, and that's a good example of colonization right there, I think. And the easy blindness of not addressing that history and simply enjoying the beauty of it, not recognizing what price was paid. Yeah, absolutely. And to come back to your point about you know, how does walking help us? Well, by walking all of that, we see how much land was taken away and expropriated. And we see that the land can be beautiful, but can still hide a terrible history. And all of these things you learn at three miles an hour as you're walking. Mm. And so walking is not the only way to learn these things, but I think it's a particularly effective way of doing so. You mentioned being at a pilgrimage studies conference and the focus on pilgrimage in Western Europe. And I think a lot of us, we are developing this conception of pilgrimage within that Catholic Western context. And you mentioned as well, developing this pilgrimage initially, professors of European heritage coming up with the plan, and then coming into contact and conversation with Mohawk leaders. Has that dialogue at that point and subsequently reshaped in any way the way that you think about pilgrimage and how you conduct pilgrimage on the land in Canada? Have you learned new insights into this practice through your conversations with Indigenous Canadians? Yes, absolutely. And I, I'll say 
Firstly, a lot of Canadians will use the term Indigenous Canadians, by the way, but a lot of Indigenous people will say, we're not Canadian. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's part of the whole treaty thing. They'll say, you're Canadian, and I am whatever it might be. I'm Treaty 6 Cree, or I'm Treaty 4 Assiniboine. And for them, it's not that they necessarily dislike Canadians or don't feel attached in some way to Canada, but they'll say, or the Mohawk will say, we need you to be separate people on the other side of the bargaining table to uphold your end of it. So that's part of it. But more to the question, have I learned anything from the Indigenous peoples in terms of pilgrimage? And the answer is, oh boy, so much that I, I can hardly, hardly overstate how much I've learned. I feel like I've sat at their feet or walked with them in many cases and learned so much, especially about this connection with land and relationship. It's easy to kind of overstate things, but a lot of pilgrimage people, either practitioners or people who study pilgrimage, focus on this sort of Camino example, but on the idea of sort of a hero's walk, what I would call a hero's walk. One of the classes I teach at Concordia is a theology and film class. And it's amazing how there's this thing that a lot of listeners will have heard of before called the monomyth, the monomyth of the hero's journey. And when I was in Spain, and France, and I was filming the film, my film, Something Grand, which is on that website, somethinggrand.ca. It was amazing how many people said to me, I want to prove to myself that I can still do something. I want to have done something grand. I want to be changed by my experience. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But in many cases, it was framed as an individual journey, even an individual journey of healing which of course is a very necessary thing in many pilgrimages. What I've learned from indigenous people about walking primarily in North America or Turtle Island, as many indigenous people will call it, is that we're always in relationship. And I, I think about the communal walker who makes sure that they blog every day or that they're constantly in contact with a wider community that supports them in their walk. In some ways, that communal walker, even if they think of themselves as on some sort of heroic journey, is actually living in a relational a web that supports them in their pilgrimage. And of course, medieval Christian pilgrimage was in a relational web, not only with the living, but with the dead, with the saints, who were that surplus of holiness that arrived when you were at the shrine. So the indigenous writers that I've read and people that I've walked with, I think also of Skydancer Louise Half, who walked with me out west and is a wonderful poet. They're constantly talking about their ancestors and walking with their ancestors, even when they're by themselves. And we who are not Indigenous can learn something because in some ways, not to steal that idea from them, but it maybe might inspire in us sparking up some historical reminiscence of our own, those of us who are European background, of our own richnesses and our own background, which is this idea that a pilgrimage was often relational. The pilgrim who walked through Europe received gifts from others. As a mendicant, in some cases, you just needed the hospitality of others. So pilgrimage was always a relational enterprise. One of the things I've learned, I guess, was to reframe pilgrimage from the heroic journey lens, which isn't necessarily always wrong or a bad thing, but to reframe it into this relational lens and into a connection with land and with all of my relatives, learning from the Indigenous authors, and especially for Canadians. And I, I wonder if not for Americans too, this idea of treaty which is a, an official recognition of, of the relationship between peoples on land. I'm sure there are people listening who come from North America, from U.S., Canada, Mexico, but other countries that have histories of colonization that are interested by the work you're doing. And particularly those of us in North America, I know a lot of antsy people being stuck at home over these past few months has not only made them miss being able to go to Europe and other places, but has also prompted some people to think about 
how can I pursue pilgrimage at home in North America? And what are those opportunities? So you have been exploring these, but they're not necessarily open for large numbers of walkers, and it still poses some challenges logistically. What would you suggest for Canadians listening, Americans listening from the U.S., about how they could pursue this particular kind of pilgrimage that you've been focused on, which is pilgrimage in a reconciliatory spirit that is prompting particularly those of us of European heritage to think more about our settler history and our colonial impact. Yeah, thank you. I, I think there is certainly a way for us to walk at home and learn something about our own, wherever we might be. So for instance, if it's uh, Australia, Australia, uh, South Africa, Canada, the United States are, are settler societies, as you said. And walking during pandemic times, or perhaps at any time, walking closer to home means learning something about home. One of the first things I do is I would caution against just sort of reserve a First Nation somewhere and just sort of showing up because that's just bad manners. And exercise is a kind of privilege that, in fact, is part of the problem from the beginning. But for instance, especially in terms of Indigenous peoples, and I'm quite sure this is true in the United States and in Australia in their particular context as well, but in Canada, a lot of First Nations have powwows. And even though the powwow wasn't necessarily you know, original to all First Nations, it's become a kind of a pan-Indigenous thing, at least in, uh, north of the border. And those are always occasions where everyone is welcome and has a good chance to learn something about the local First Nation and to experience something of their culture at their invitation on their timing. And so it's good for that. But in terms of walking, I think that especially in North America and in the United States and in Canada, walking on the land, firstly, you have to be careful, of course, as you know very well, Dave, I think from your experiences, you have to be aware of landowners and of posted trespassing and no trespassing and so on. But once you've made proper kinds of explorations and done the logistical stuff, getting out in the land, is not, there's nothing like it because you learn something about where you are, where you live and about the history of it, even just by finding things, whether it's urban or rural, whether it's gritty city history or whether it's rural history. And I think particularly in your case, one of your concerns, for instance, is, is the connection between urban and rural populations. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a writer, Chelsea Vowell, an Indigenous writer north of the border, who talks about the fact that most Indigenous populations are in contact with rural settler populations, not urban. Mm. And it's that rural Canadian or rural American and Indigenous dynamic that needs exploring. And so one of the ways is getting to know, as I think you have a particular interest in, uh, getting to know others from our own context. And for me, getting to know people in Southwest Saskatchewan, even though I've been living in Montreal for that many years. So get out onto the land respectfully, treating it with respect and not treating it as an enemy. Canada and the United States, one of the fun differences is that this idea of frontier is part of both cultures, I think. But on the north side of the border, Canadians, there's a whole trope or a literary kind of thing where Canadians always talk about the environment killing us <laughs> and how, you know, you have to be so careful because all you have to do is make one mistake and you're dead. That's a very kind of, it casts the environment as the enemy. And of course, it needs to be treated with respect, especially in conditions such as, as you will get on the Great Plains. But at the same time, Getting out onto the land helps us to experience our relationship with it in a way that helps maybe nurture a greater ecological environmental awareness. 
I will also say, you said something about walking as an individual. It's not a bad thing to have to organize a walk with other people. And that's one thing that I learned from walking Northwest Mounted Police Trail, because it was my idea. I thought, I'll just walk this trail. Well, in the end, I couldn't really, not completely by myself. But what happened was that the people who came along with me enriched the experience, just as happens on the Camino when you fall in with a cohort out of Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port or out of Rancevay or out of Burgos or whatever. The cohort has to be more intentional, perhaps, when you're walking in North America across a less populated area. But uh, you learn something from those people that you walk with as well. And that's part of relational learning as a pilgrim, I think. Yeah, walking across the Great Plains in Kansas alone was probably too much solitude. So I, uh, I'll endorse that <laughs> suggestion of finding a group to participate with you. Well, Matthew, this has been great. Before we wrap up, I'd just love to have you tell folks about your podcast so they can learn about the kinds of work that you've been putting out there. Yeah, thank you. I'm very happy to mention the fact that here I am in England. So I'm here because I, I've been teaching a little bit here in England. And my wife is a professor at the University of Nottingham on a research leave right now. And I'm on a kind of a writing grant. And so during the what's become a lockdown again here in Nottingham, I'm trying to keep myself in shape either by very short walks in the neighborhood, but also by going up and down my stairs. And while I was going up and down my stairs, I was remembering all of the pilgrimages, whether in Iceland or in Norway or in Treaty 4 territory or from Ganawagi in Montreal. And so I came up with this podcast and it's called Pilgrimage Stories from Up and Down the Staircase. And basically I bring together sound that I recorded when I was on these walks and some of the people that I met and little snips of life experience. So you can experience a bit of that walk in Iceland or on Treaty 4 territory. I was really pleased. The last one that I put out, I had some audio of the coyotes calling near Cypress Hills. And it brings back so much to hear that sound now of the coyotes here in, in England where they don't have them. And I hope that some people might experience at least a little bit of those walks by listening to that podcast. And I have a book coming out with my friend who is an Indigenous professor, Ray Aldred, at the Vancouver School of Theology. He and I are, will be publishing a book titled Our Road to Walk, which will come out next year with Woodlake Publishing. And so uh, that will be one. And then there's a University of Regina book called The Good Walk that I hope will be out next year as well. So thank you for letting me mention those. Of course. And I do enjoy your podcast. As I said before we started, there is now this well-developed genre of conversational podcasts like mine focused on, on pilgrimage, but the audio that you integrate those experiences really does make it dynamic and engaging in a different way. So I appreciate that. And I hope people will check it out. Thank you. And thank you. Thanks for speaking with me. I appreciate the work you're doing and you taking the time to tell me about all of your work with pilgrimage and reconciliation in Canada. Now, thank you, as I appreciate yours and look forward to more episodes of your podcast. Thank you. John Hornglow and Jenny Boyack are pilgrimage planners and leaders from North Palmerston, New Zealand, where John serves as a priest in the All Saints Parish and Jenny serves as choir director and organist, and they are joining me to talk about the pilgrimages that they lead. Thank you for speaking with me, John and Jenny. It's good, and our city, by the way, Americans always have trouble with our name. It's actually Palmerston North, ah. so rather than North <laughs> Palmerston, but that's fine. That just shows a cultural difference. Lesson learned. Thank you for that.
I want to talk to you about the pilgrimages that you lead. But before we do, I'd like to set up some larger context, as I suspect a lot of people listening don't have a deep understanding of New Zealand's particular historical context. And that's going to be important. And I know most people listening, certainly those of us in the United States, think at this point that absolutely everything is perfect in New Zealand. And a lot of things are, but like a lot of places, New Zealand has a complicated colonial history. So for those who are relatively inexperienced on this front, what is kind of the quick summation of New Zealand's colonial history? New Zealand was settled a thousand or so years ago by voyagers from, we're not exactly certain, we're in the Pacific, in the mid-Pacific, maybe over to the Asian side. We're not completely sure of the origins of the indigenous people, but it is about a thousand years since they arrived, obviously, by sea and made New Zealand their home and established over those centuries some really strong cultural practices. And then New Zealand was so-called discovered by Abel Tasman from Holland and Captain James Cook from Britain, and it was the British who claimed New Zealand as their colony and basically colonised it and did what they did as colonisers. They acquired land, they settled here, it became a place where people wanting to escape the class system in Britain and Europe came. There were early traders and whalers and sailors and quite a varied population. There was also a very strong move from within Britain for those with quite a capitalist agenda to come in and acquire land. And that acquisition of land has remained at the heart of many of the issues we are still facing today. And interestingly, just yesterday, there was an initial agreement on a piece of land which has become disputed and finally between the Crown and we call the Kingitanga, which is the Māori King movement, which incorporates some of our iwi, but not all. The agreement reached yesterday, and that was quite a historic agreement. The other thing that was really significant in our history was that in 1840, there was a treaty signed between many, many Māori chiefs and Queen Victoria, the British Crown. And that treaty was a symbol of the Crown's partnership with Māori and of Māori's willingness to accept Queen Victoria as the chief over all. And sadly, the colonial powers throughout the years did many things which were in breach of that treaty. And it's only been in the last 50 years or so that as a country we have really addressed those city obligations and also looked to redress many of the wrongs that were done. One of the things to do with the treaty is that it talked about partnership. So in theory, there was an equality between Māori and Pākehā. It didn't work out like that. Just to backtrack, in the context of pilgrimage... The first missionaries arrived around 1814. He was Samuel Marsden, came from Sydney but was with what we call the Church Missionary Society. And he preached the first sermon in New Zealand on Christmas Day, 1814, bringing good tidings of great joy. 
and the Māori embraced this and ran with it. It uh, correlated very well with their own indigenous spirituality, and this was like the cream on the cake to know about this one god above the gods that they themselves had. And they embraced that, and the first missionaries worked with Māori, particularly when conflicts grew up around the early government, which was very colonial, very empire, very land-grabbing, and the missionaries got into a lot of trouble because they took the side of the Māori. However, as the church, European church grew, the settlers grew, what actually happened was that the church slipped away from that position with Māori and became focused on the settler church, but Māori continued to run with the gospel. So many of our pilgrimage sites in New Zealand relate to that period of history so that we can help people reinterpret and understand what it was like for the various parties who were involved and where the strengths and weaknesses of that approach. I want to make sure that we're clear on the the terms. So there's a term that you use for, for European heritage folks in New Zealand. What is it? The word is Pākehā, Pākehā. So John and I would call ourselves New Zealand Pākehā, which means that we are of European descent or non-Māori descent, but we align very much with New Zealand. It is our place and we are part of it. It's a term that we use with pride. Some people object to it, some Europeans object to it, and we don't. We're in a different place. Because the problem is that we're not European either. We are Pacific, but Pacific also refers to the many islands further out from here, Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, etc. So in New Zealand, there are primarily three groupings of people, and they're reflected in the church. There is the Pacific church and community, there is the Māori church and community, and there is the European or Pākehā or kind of white community. Okay. So I've spoken recently with a man who originated in Australia. I spoke with Matthew Anderson, who will be in the same episode from Canada. And they talked about the different positions that their countries are in when it comes to coming to terms with their colonial pasts and beginning the process of reconciliation and and reparation. Where is New Zealand in that process? Well, certainly I can't speak so much about Canada, but certainly our observations of Australia as our very near neighbours, that we are a long way ahead in terms of recognising that colonial past is less than ideal and that the consequences of it continue to be felt by Indigenous people in terms of socioeconomic status, educational achievement, crime statistics, health statistics, welfare issues, employment prospects. So there are many ways in which we're still seeing the effects of that. That has been recognised in New Zealand much more widely and also much more officially on a political Mm. level Mm. since the 70s and 80s. I'm a teacher, so my career has been in education And there have been huge developments in terms of curriculum, in terms of learning processes, 
in terms of resource availability, in terms of the retelling of New Zealand history, in terms of educational opportunities and certainly proactive policies to right the wrongs of colonialism. We have ongoing things in terms of the justice system and incarceration rates. That's very hot at the moment and we do also in terms of social welfare policies. But I think that we have a very honest appraisal. We have significant Māori representation now in Parliament and there is an expectation that Māori will be represented around the governing table, whether it's at local or at state level. That's a given. And that is one of our obligations under the Treaty of Waitangi, which is our founding document and has become a, a core guiding point, really, for New Zealand institutions. So no school, no university, no hospital, no local authority could possibly put together policies or enact whatever its task is without exploring very deeply what its obligations are under the Treaty of Waitangi. One of the differences between Australia and New Zealand was how we were founded. So Australia was a penal colony, Mm -hmm. and the Aborigines were way out in the central part of Australia. Here, we have Māori rubbing shoulders with us Europeans all the time. And as Jenny said earlier, we were founded as an egalitarian state, so quite a different beginning that has meant that our history is is very different as well. So our Governor-General has been Māori, Deputy Prime Minister, um, etc. The head of the military was Māori. It's cleaning up the past and the impact of that rather than something in the present. Everything really is better in New Zealand. (laughs) Thank you for that context. What first led you then towards this idea of organizing and leading pilgrimages in service to this larger process of reconciliation? As an Anglican minister, I was also the deputy mayor of our city. And so I was very aware of how many of our European people had not ever been on a marae. A marae is the meeting place of Māori. We do not have reservations as they do in North America. And so that's their home area. Therefore, they were very monocultural. So we organised pilgrimages to our local marae, which is about 25 kilometres out of town, and they're very good friends of ours there. And many people started coming with us to go out to explore that. That would be one of the earliest kind of experiences, Mm. so that people experience firsthand. Because as we pilgrimage, you actually walk beside, you swap stories, you listen to other people's perspectives, you're open to it. I think I'd add to that that one of the significant things is the opportunity for people to tell their own story on their own behalf, not to have somebody telling their stories for them. So, for example, our friends and colleagues who are at this particular marae, which is close by and that we have a close association with, are extremely articulate and passionate and they have lived their stories for generations and have wonderful stories to tell. And so for them to tell their stories and for 
people to hear those directly is so much more powerful than for us to somehow mediate those stories. So what? giving people voices is mm, a really mm. significant part of Very. the journeys that we are undertaking as the nation, but also as communities and individuals within the nation and as churches. One of the interesting things that happened when I was the Deputy Mayor is I was in charge of our sister city relationship with Missoula, Montana. And so I took a group across officially and the local Maori chief and his wife, we took them and that was a huge learning for the people of Missoula, Montana because I let them speak first because they are what we call Tangata Whenua, they're the First Nations people. We spoke, both of us in Maori as well as in English, just a whole lot of things began to be swapped. Now that wasn't a pilgrimage, it was a civic exchange, but it achieved some of the same things. Pilgrimage, of course, has a long history in Christianity. Does it also play a part in Maori tradition? Very much so. The word that would be used in Maori is the word hikoi, which is a journey undertaken on foot. Nowadays, Maori, like the rest of us, would think of pilgrimages as not necessarily always walking ones, but a hikoi is a purposeful journey. And so there would have been, in pre-European times, there would have been hikoi undertaken for all kinds of reasons, often to connect up with other people, all sorts of reasons. So there certainly is a history, and there is a recent history of hikoi in New Zealand, particularly around protests and around wanting to publicise causes. We've had two significant hikoi in the last 40 years now. One was a land march from both ends of the country, so the top of the North Island, the bottom of the South Island, with people converging on Wellington, which is fairly central and is our capital city and where our parliament is. And that was protesting against land confiscation and the loss of land, which has been massive for Māori. Part of that is that for Māori, land is inextricably tied up with identity. And so your ancestral lands are the key to identity, who I am, where I come from, who I belong to. And if you lose your land, there is the sense that you are really disconnected from your roots. So that was a significant land hikoi. And then probably 10 years or so later, the Anglican Church set up what was called a hikoi of hope. And that was in response to many social conditions across the country, that poverty, lack of opportunity, not necessarily just for Māori, And that was, again, undertaken by thousands of people. So we have an understanding of hikoi. And, of course, we we equally have an understanding of pilgrimage in New Zealand, less in terms of us being pilgrims within our own country, strangely, and more about being pilgrims in places like Spain and Italy and the UK. A quick story from our history In the late 1840s, there was a war between two tribes in New Zealand that were neighbouring, and 
two of one of the tribe by the name of Manahira and Kiriopa said, we will go and seek reconciliation with the other tribe. And their own tribe said, no, 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 you'll be killed. Anyway, they went, and that's a hikoi. That's, they went on pilgrimage of reconciliation with the other tribe. So that's how far back it goes. They went, and as they approached the village, the chief of that village came out with his warriors and shot them both dead. One died immediately, and one died seeking to forgive the people that had shot him. He died a little later in that day. And as a result, both tribes were reconciled when the horror of what had happened came to them. A large number of people embraced different values, namely the Christian values of peace and reconciliation. Well, one of the sites we visit, just about three hours away from our home, is where they are buried. Hmm. And as we visit a site, one of our leaders, Archbishop Sir David Moxon, who we do a lot of work with, gave us three questions. What did God do here? Or if you're in a secular situation, what, what happened here? What's happening here today? And what might I do as a result of being here? What might God want me to do as a result of being here? And so we encourage people when they might visit a site like that to be able to reflect on those three questions. That's great. What are some of the other places that you have organized pilgrimages towards? To give you a different context, we, of course, are an environmentally very aware nation, and we are aware of how much of our original forestation, for instance, has been wrecked by earlier colonial powers, uh, water has been polluted, etc. So we will take people on environmental pilgrimages out into the hills and we will stop and we'll go with ecologists or scientists, etc. and theologians and they will come and they will unpack things and we will end with a Eucharist out there. But we will go usually on a one-day pilgrimage into the hills so that people can reconnect with how New Zealand was before the early colonial powers stripped most of New Zealand of its forests. So that gives you an example. In a sense, if you want to use the word reconciliation, it's about helping us as individuals, as churches maybe, as families to reconcile with our environment. That's a very strong Māori cultural value I talked about the importance of land, but the importance of being guardians of the environment rather than masters over the environment is deeply embedded in Māori cultural understanding. Mm -hmm. The word for that would be kaitiaki, guardians and caretakers. For those of us Mm -hmm. who are Pākehā, it's something of a reconciliation with our natural world and with our place in it. So one of the things that we try and help people to do is to look at their own values and look at the values, for instance, of of Māori and reflect on that. So a very quick analysis of that, our Western culture, especially this is heading into Christmas when this is being recorded, is massively consumer-driven, capitalistic, materialistic, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And the visa account coming in in January will reflect that. (laughs) And I own my property. So my house here and my section, or our house and section, is mine. Well, in Māori, Māori understanding is that we are guardians of the place. I don't own it. It resides with me for a period and then others will take it over. 
and that we are a communal people and therefore we care for each other. In our prison system, for instance, up until recently, we would just lock people away. So Māori would be locked away in a cell or whatever, you know, same in, in all countries with that kind of a system. But we are working to have parallel systems. So there, there is still the court system where you'll go to the courthouse just like you do in Canada or the United States. But also, Māori are finding it's much more effective when those court appearances officially take place on a marae, marae being the village meeting area. And the elders and the lawyers and the police and everybody will be present, but it takes place in an environment which is far more conducive to their values. So for us, Jenny and me, we see ourselves as guardians, not owners of the, of the property we have because of our interaction with Māori. And so as we go on pilgrimage, it gives us a chance to reflect on, hear from and engage with values that are different from ours and then alter them. Hmm. I imagine that's true as well in terms of your vision and your design of these pilgrimages. I know you don't run these alone. You collaborate with other folks from your church, and then, of course, also with Maori folk. And so I'm wondering, how has that collaboration expanded or further shaped your thinking about pilgrimage in new ways as you have learned from your Maori partners? A very quick story. We have another marae where I, we wanted to take people to. I'm a planner by nature, so I, I planned it all out, and I put it all together, and I went to them and said, you know, this is what we're thinking. What do you think? They got really upset, actually, because they said, you haven't even started talking to us before you've actually put all your thinking together. And I had to put all of that aside and go back to the <laughs> drawing boards and dialogue with them. And that was a big learning. It's an unfolding thing. One of the things that is really important for me is that I continue to inform myself and hear the stories and soak up as much knowledge as I can. I have some Māori language, not a huge amount, but I am being more and more drawn to needing to actually put some real time into learning Māori more because certainly many of our young people are coming through. Māori is being spoken a lot more, so the new generations uh, light years ahead of what John and I are from the schooling that we had. Being able to converse and communicate in te reo offers new opportunities for understanding because, of course, there are cultural concepts that don't necessarily translate well. There are nuances and meanings that are so much richer and so much more meaningful if you are conversing in Māori rather than in English. So that's a commitment from me. And one of the things I think we're realising more and more is that pilgrimage is the end point. We have to incorporate more and more things into our own lives, into our lives as a couple, into our life as a family, so that what we do has integrity and authenticity. It's not just skim deep and it's not tokenism. So that's an ongoing challenge. You asked about stories. We're currently writing a book on pilgrimage sites in New Zealand. It's never been done. 
And the process, because you asked a process question, is that we will identify the sites, we will visit the sites, we will talk with Māori and Pākehā and others, then we will go back to those people with it and allow them in their own way to talk over what we have written before they come back and it's signed off, before it even goes to print. So that kind of process is there. Pilgrimage is serendipitous. We were just driving down the South Island and we thought we'd go to a, a cafe that's very famous. And on the way, we saw the small, small little church up on the hill. So we, we went up there and we uncovered a whole history there of the way in which whalers, sealers and settlers and Māori who were there locally and Wesleyans and Catholics and Anglicans all worked together and had wonderful understanding between them and support of each other. And so by telling that story, we are able to put some really positive stories out into the history of New Zealand and not just the painful ones of colonial confiscation of land and institutional discrimination. And could I just say, as an aside, if people want to read more about the New Zealand pilgrimages and things like that, there are some articles on our website, which is just www.pilgrimagenz, or one word, pilgrimagenz.nz. It's a great resource, for sure. I hope people go check it out. John and Jenny, thank you. That was perfect. I'm glad we made it through all of the technical issues. <laughs> thank you for persevering. It's been lovely to talk to you. When I was a teenager, I learned about an indigenous movement in Crescent Valley, Nevada, that was actively vying to defend its treaty rights. The Western Shoshone Defense Project had organized in support of that, resisting efforts by the U.S. Bureau of Land Management to round up Western Shoshone horses and cattle, which it claimed were violating the law by grazing on what it identified as public lands. At the same time, multinational gold mining operations were looking to operate on nearby Mount Tanabo, a sacred site for the Western Shoshone people. At the center of this resistance was the Dan family, and particularly the sisters Carrie and Mary. I visited their home several times, twice as a teenager, and then once years later with a group of my students. Central Nevada is rugged land, the kind of place one might write off as empty and barren when driving quickly through. But it becomes more evocative when you're immersed in it, feeling the sun on your face, the wind rip through the sagebrush and your clothes, the incredible tapestry of stars at night. I'll always remember attending their spring gathering one year, sitting in a canvas tent next to Carrie as a few seminal elders sang blue suede shoes. Carrie turned to me partway through the song, said, by stealing our livelihood, your people are killing us. And then she patted me on the shoulder. I was 17. Over the years, the government managed to get other Western Shoshone to accept settlements, ending their disputes about the violated treaty rights. After Mary died in 2005, Carrie was increasingly alone in her resistance efforts, increasingly isolated on her ranch. When I visited with students a few years after that, the peak of the resistance movement had long passed. The activist community had moved on. 
Even Carrie's attention had turned from her past focus on Western Shoshone rights to broader concerns about climate change. She was in her late 70s at that point. My students and I were trying to camp in an old shelter on their land, but the roof was proving to be quite porous. It was late March, and sleet was lashing the tenuous structure, dripping down on top of all of us. Suddenly, Carrie, again, late 70s, rumbled over on a UTV. She had a ladder and a plastic tarp. Before I knew it, I was slipping across a slush-covered roof, wary of every step, while Carrie nimbly spread the tarp around me. The wind flared up, sleet slashed across my face, and the tarp billowing with each gust almost ripped out of my hands at multiple points, almost knocked me off the roof. And Carrie, Carrie was undeterred. Eventually, we got it done, though it was mostly Carrie overcoming my lack of help along the way. We had a dry night. Carrie died on January 1st, perhaps age 88. She didn't have a birth certificate. Making this episode, I was reminded how fortunate I was that circumstance led me to Crescent Valley as a teenager, and how easy it would have been, if not for that circumstance, to make it to this point in my life with effectively zero personal connection with indigenous Americans, to have no tangible frame of reference for understanding what our colonial legacy is in this country on the present. And it's inspiring to me and it's inspiring to me to hear how pilgrimage offers a conduit through which we might begin to explore this more deeply. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Matthew Anderson, Jenny Boyack, and John Harnblow. You can find Matthew at somethinggrand.ca. The site includes links to Matthew's writing, his videos, and his podcast series, Pilgrimage Stories from Up and Down the Staircase. Meanwhile, Jenny and John can be found at pilgrimagenz.ng or nz.nz. As they develop their book on pilgrimage in New Zealand, that will be the place, I'm sure, to find out more. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcasts at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at DaveWitson.com. Thanks as always for listening. 